you for that very generous introduction. I hope I'm um, worthy of your kind words, and I'm very honoured to be asked to contribute to what is a very distinguished series of lectures. Um, I'd like to thank you for this invitation. When issuing this invitation, and perhaps because I'm one of the more incongruous contributors to your diverse circle of acquaintance, um, Helena requested that I say something about what I do, how I come to do it, and why it might be possibly of any interest, or dare one suggest in our ultra-utilitarian era of any relevance. I'm a composer, and recently I've become a director of festivals, arts festivals. Searching from, for some connections between the interior life of a composer and the public persona of an impresario is not always obvious. However, I like to think that both activities are deeply related through a rather universal fascination that we all have with ritual and sensuality. Let me try to explain myself. And in attempting to do so, I need to dart and weave between the various threads of my professional life. I hope that the particular personal juxtapositions that I present you with are not too confusing. Hold on for the ride. As a composer, sound is the sensory dimension through which I experience an attempt to make meaning of the world. In attempting to do so, we are at a moment in history when one is overwhelmed by information, in an era where one's senses are literally deluged by an overload of visual and oral stimulation. As an artist, my relationships are experiential rather than theoretical. I certainly share with scientists and philosophers a desire to make sense of my existence. It's just that I do it in a very different way. It's fragile. It's highly intuitive. Um, it has a particular kind of sensual, sensory acuity and a relatedness of that sense to a memory, a subtle intertwining of sense and memory. In his book, Material Thinking, historian and artist Paul Carter explores the thought processes that he has observed, both as a critic and a collaborator, as part of the practice of making art. He describes his ideas as follows. Material thinking occurs in the making of works of art. It happens when an artist dares to ask the simple but far-reaching questions, what matters? What is the material of thought? To, these, to ask these questions is to embark upon an intellectual adventure peculiar and particular to the making process. Critics and theorists interested in communicating ideas about things cannot emulate those things. They must remain outside the essential experience of such phenomena. My experiences as a composer closely resemble Paul Carter's thesis. When I write music, my mind is constantly searching for shapes, sonic shapes, rhythmic fragments, melodic phrases, which begin to be conceived in isolation and then in ever-increasing combinations and permutations until textures and patterns emerge and evolve. When I first went to the University of Sydney to study music, I don't remember my lecturers ever discussing anything as practical as the presentation of a concert 
or how to put a program together. My world is a festival director. We all seemed far too earnest to worry about such practicalities. We assumed that we, what we were engaged with was so evidently fascinating that as long as we became technically proficient, our careers would take care of themselves, how wrong we were. I was probably, like most art students anywhere in the world, a nerdy dreamer hopelessly hooked on an impractical delusion of my assured future success. Thus began my career as a festival junkie, which started by accident, in the most convivial of circumstances, in the most breathtaking surroundings. What began as a long weekend visiting friends in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney continues to haunt me to this day. My host on that fateful weekend was a prominent barrister, rather like Helena, with a remarkable <coughs> flair for self-promotion and outrageous behaviour. He once had a trial aborted at the outset of opening at the outset by opening his defense of an infamous dominatrix charged with indecent exposure and lewd behavior by suggesting to the members of the jury that he all he was seeking for his client was a fair crack of the whip. <laughs> Talk about tools of the trade. His challenge to me on that occasion was to create an arts festival centered around an amphitheater he was building on a block of land adjacent to his house with spectacular views of the Jamison Valley and the mountains to the west. He certainly would not have been the first person of means to have the idea of using the arts to enhance the value of his own property. As a fresh-faced 22-year-old, I was deeply flattered by his offer, mistaking his faith in me for an intimate understanding on his part let alone my own, of the intricacies of devising a complex idea such as a festival. Undaunted by any genuine knowledge or understanding, I set about my new task with unrestrained zeal. That the amphitheatre overlooked a vast valley did not seem to him to be an acoustic problem at all. The fact that all the sound would be sucked off the stage and into the glorious vistas was a mere technical detail. Not knowing much more myself, and being naturally optimistic, I became increasingly excited about the challenges of programming a context, of programming what I then later discovered was a festival. The fact that the use of the amphitheatre had to be abandoned as a venue halfway through the process was a temporary inconvenience. There were, after all, a plethora of other good venues throughout the mountains, all of them covered, um, and some of them possessing more than adequate acoustics. It's fair to say I got carried away, so much so that the inaugural Blue Mountains Festival held in October 1988 comprised some 76 separate performances spread across eight different venues lasting 10 days. All this was achieved with a staff of just four like-minded lunatics, in actual fact close friends, or they were until that moment, um, each of whom I had quite shamelessly conned into helping me in this great new adventure. It was all quite mad and should never have been attempted. <coughs> Happily, I have come a long way both in experience and attitude since that rather inauspicious baptism. Nowadays, whenever I start work on a festival program, I am always inspired by a wonderful quotation from the French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who said, just as places are sensed, senses are placed. 
He seems to me to describe perfectly as a reciprocal relationship between the setting and the substance that exists at the core of a true festival experience. Festivals are ubiquitous. There is no place, no continent, no country, no community, culture, or civilization in which they are not present. While they are regularly dismissed as trivial, their omnipresence would suggest that they fulfill a profound need in all of us. Festivals are rituals, and they are celebratory rituals. In other times, less materially fortunate or obsessed than our own, festivals were crucial moments of social cohesion. Surely there was a daring to the life of a traditional community that would hoard a whole year's food only to devour it all in a single orgy of feasting, dance, music, poetry, and drama. Given the precariousness of existence in many of these communities, this really was an extreme form of festivity. In such societies, festivals were manifestations of the core rituals of a community, whether they be seasonal or personal, the cycle of life or of a particular life, the rites of spring or the rites of passage. Celebrations such as Mardi Gras or Boxing Day being the one time of the year when strict social mores were relaxed or even reversed with, in the case of Mardi Gras, men dressing as women and vice versa, or as with Boxing Day, the rich and powerful waiting on, attending to and serving their own servants. Witness accounts of the public parade of the social and political elite backwards um, on donkeys through the streets, being paraded backwards on donkeys through the streets, being pelted with bags of flour and other more pungent potions along the route, or the grotesque demonstrations of faux femininity during Mardi Gras, complete with extravagant wigs, smudged rouge, clouds of powder, and the stench of cheap perfume. Such festivals acted as a form of social, pre social pressure value, a palpable sense of reckless abandon, if not outright danger, seemed to be a necessary ingredient in all of these activities. There was, however, a note of caution to all of this, a need to find some kind of balance. Too much festivity and things could easily spiral out of control not enough celebration, and anger would start to fester some, like some malignant disease, spreading discontent and worse. For all of their rowdy, robust behaviour, the festival space seemed to have satisfied a primal craving for both freedom and control. It was a mechanism in which ritualised forms of frustration and enlightenment could simultaneously find expression. And not just in Rio during Fat Tuesday, could such seemingly unorthodox behavior be experienced in the voodoo ceremonies in Haiti, in Mexico during the Day of the Dead, or the more European celebrations of the winter solstice, prevailing social order, and most crucially to the idea of the festival, time itself, however briefly, was, was deemed to stand still. No matter how outrageous, wild, or orgiastic these events were, they were all quite deliberately short, contained within quite defined parameters, lest they get out of control or worse, become the normal mode of behavior. Some festivals, other kinds of festivals, developed for specific religious purposes, 
great pilgrimages such as those to Mecca, the source of the Ganges, um, or Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, have festivals associated with their particular journeys, which can be experienced through the music and poetry connected with each stage of a voyage, a voyage, a personal voyage of enlightenment. The festival thus becomes enshrined within the narrative of the ritual as each part of a pilgrimage unfolds. The strange juxtaposition of Christian and pagan imagery associated with many of these events in Europe, serving to reinforce the fragile coexistence of officialdom and folklore. Festivals were also intrinsic parts of the great sporting contests of ancient Greece and Rome. The original Olympic Games were as much competitions amongst epic poets and singers as they were a demonstration of athletic prowess. From 1912, the Stockholm Games in the modern era, medals were actually given in architecture, poetry, music, and design. Those medals ceased in 1948 in London. More recently, festivals have become gatherings of like-minded enthusiasts, birds of a feather flocking together. They usually concentrate on a particular artistic genre, such as film, literature, opera, dance, music, or even a genre within music, such as jazz. When instead of reflecting a high-minded obsession with an artistic genre, they focus on a particular hobby, festivals of this type can be especially inventive, entertaining, endearing, and above all, wonderfully, joyfully absurd. Um, in delivering a lecture for the Edinburgh Festival in uh, 2007, the historian Simon Sharma reminded me of one particular festival of this kind. He referred to the Boggy Bayou Mullet Festival in Niceville, Florida, a festival dedicated to a seafood long considered the underdog of, this, of, of, the, of the river world. And this was a festival of, of people who were obsessed with mullets and obsessed with the idea that they could actually go fishing for mullets. But as, as a particular concept, there is absolutely nothing different between a mullet festival and a jazz festival. I need you to understand that point. Let me return to sound. As someone who was born and educated in Australia, my earliest sonic experiences were radically divergent from both the urban and broader environmental soundscapes of Europe. When I think of how best to describe such a difference, two words come to my mind's ear, scale and solitude. Notwithstanding the urbanization of Australia and its incredibly dense urban population, even its cities, even in its cities, it sounds and feels very different vast and empty in comparison to the idea of Europe. Murray Schaefer, in writing his book, The Tuning of the World, reflects this in a very simple um, example. It is only in the Northern Territory of North Austra Northern Australia that you can actually record the natural environment for more than eight minutes without any kind of mechanical or human intervention. Think about that. Eight minutes is not a long time. In my quest for an analogies that might help explain my inner acoustic imaginings, I want to offer some ideas, most particularly those of Edmund Carpenter and Steve Feld. They've been very hugely helpful to me coming to terms with my context as a festival director 
and as a composer. Edmund Carpenter was, and Steve Feld is, a field anthropologist who undertakes research in completely different places, but with one crucial similarity, the role of sound as the primary way of sensing and responding to a particular environment. Edmund Carpenter was a Canadian anthropologist who worked closely for many years with the Inuit peoples, the indigenous populations to be found across the Arctic Circle from Greenland to the far northern parts of Canada. For most of the year, this environment is snowbound, navigating across such an isolated landscape, the horizon barely discernible requires a completely different set of skills to taking a stroll along the strand. A highly developed sense of sound and touch are more important than sight. To the uninitiated, such an environment looks like a confusing white canvas, a kind of Donald Judd installation writ large, one might suggest. Only an acute sensitivity to the sound of the ever-changing direction of the wind, the constantly shifting texture of the snow, offers any hope of accurate navigation. Steve Feld is an ethnomusicologist who has lived amongst, recorded and written about the poetry and music of the Kaluli people from Mount Basavi in the central highlands of Papua New Guinea. The dense equatorial rainforest of this remote region of Papua New Guinea does not reveal a horizon. One navigates through the landscape relying on other senses, especially sound. It is always the middle distance and the close-up that surrounds you, envelops you. That is both in terms of the climate, the temperature, and the visual field. The idea of perspective means so much less in, a, in the densely thick canopy and the dark canopy of that rainforest. In describing the way in which the Kaluli people relate to their world, Steve Feld invented an intriguing and eccentric world to help explain its context, acoustomology, in which he means or intends to mean knowledge of the world through sound. I make these observations partly out of a deep concern that urban environments, which are increasingly indistinguishable one from another, are prescribing our potential and even our ambitions, and certainly our creativity. I fear that for reasons of information overload, our ability to sense the world around us is becoming somehow diminished. Indeed, there is some emerging research that points to a relationship between certain types of physical and sensual stimuli on which, we would uh, on which we would suggest that our habits and behavior can exert an influence and on the development of our neural pathways. Such claims are, to some extent, still speculations. However, were they to be even half true, they would surely radically shift our understanding of the importance of environmental factors in relation to our cognitive existence. More of this thought in a moment. We live in a world that faces huge challenges, exploding population growth, diminishing natural resources, vanishing indigenous cultures, increasing tribalism and bitter localized feuds. 
human dislocation on unprecedented dimensions, of large-scale suffering from easily preventable or treatable diseases. Our planet is shrinking, ecologically and metaphorically. The march of humankind is causing vast tracts of natural landscape, ecosystems teeming with diverse species, some of which we may never know, to disappear. Is it not the simultaneous tragedy of our times that every city, European, Australasian, American, is becoming a carbon copy of every other city, polluted, congested, and ultimately unsustainable? One of the people um, whose work I have become familiar with, courtesy of Professor Ford, <coughs> is Mickey Hart, the percussionist um, in the rock band The Grateful Dead. Some years ago, Mickey had the foresight to realize that a depleted rainforest was not merely an issue of biological statistics, rather a profound challenge to our capacity to remember and thereafter recall and care about such places. As a result, he started a remarkable program at the Library of Congress in Washington, which he called not the endangered species, not the biologically degraded or anything like that, but the endangered music series. And in containing that idea, I think he gives us something really powerful to think about. When a rainforest is torn down, it is not just the ecology that is affected, the oxygen that is depleted. It is most particularly the human relationships with specific environments and, their, and those places that are destroyed. The poetry and songs, the stories and rituals, the intimate knowledge alongside the memory of unique locations that vanishes as well. Consider the words of the philosopher and critic George Steiner. In his book, In Bluebeard's Castle, published in 1971, he says the following. Technical advances, superb in themselves, are operative in the ruin of primary living systems and ecologies. Our sense of historical motion is no longer linear, but as of a spiral. We can now conceive of a technocratic, hygienic utopia functioning in the void of human possibilities. Surely we are both the beneficiaries and the victims of our actions, and most especially of our modes of thinking. I would like to take a moment to explore some of the ways in which we construct a shared sense of reality, to engage with the very patterns of thinking, the very processes of our minds, to delve into the ways we conceive of individual capacity and creativity, and perhaps most fundamentally, to look at some definitions of what we could call intelligence itself. It is said that the medical discoveries of the next decades will focus upon a greater understanding of the human brain, with the field of neuroscience set to be an exciting, expanding new frontier for medical research. Some of the most interesting and provocative ideas I have encountered recently on the broad subject of neuroscience come from a psychiatrist and literary scholar called Ian McGilchrist. He has written a book with the rather forbidding title, The Master and His Emissary. It takes its title from a short story by Nietzsche, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. If you're game to delve into it after that title, and it hasn't put you off, 
Dr. Gilchrist has some pretty startling things to say about the human brain. He begins uh, his imperfect and occasionally inconsistent, yet overall hugely impressive tone with a description of the difference between its right and left hemispheres, between the areas of this complex organ that to some extent control emotion and imagination that is the right hemisphere, and the location of reason and rational thought that is the left hemisphere. He goes to considerable lengths to assert that every single brain function is carried out by both hemispheres. Reason and emotion and imagination, both and together, collectively depend on the coming together of what both hemispheres contribute. Dr. McGilchrist develops a powerful narrative about how each hemisphere of the brain produces a different version or take on the world. The master and his emissary offers some powerful paradigms for how we might better begin to understand aspects of the most basic functions of, of, our, of our thought processes. For the first time in my extremely limited experience, here is at least a plausible thesis I hesitate to describe it as evidence. I'm not competent to do so. But certainly uh, a thesis from a leading medical scientist about the various ways in which we construct a mental image of the world and why it seems vital to achieve an equilibrium within the different components and great capacities of our brains that modern neuroscience is just beginning to understand as vastly more plastic than we ever imagined it to be. In a world so dominated by scientific and technological innovation, it is important to assert that there is likely to be no single way of thinking that alone or singularly encapsulates the essence of human capacity, human creativity, or human intelligence. Beyond the world of medicine, the work of the educationalist and of the eminent Harvard educationalist Howard Gardner is especially illuminating. In his groundbreaking book, Frames of Mind, from 1983, Gardner described multiple forms of human intelligence, not just linguistic and logical, the continuing presumption of so many of our institutionalized actions, but spatial, bodily kinesthetic, musical, interpersonal, intrapersonal, forms of intelligence demonstrated not just by bureaucrats, um, and managers, but architects and sculptors, dancers and athletes and gymnasts, violinists, actors, business leaders, and indeed, even by politicians. Courtesy of the work of Professor Gardner, the definitions of intelligence have, I would like to suggest, become vastly expanded. He argues persuasively that intelligence is not single-minded, but multifaceted. It is not a reductio, and I would suggest ad absurdum, but he describes the need for multiple intelligence in all of us to navigate the increasing complexities of, and the challenges of the world around us. Gardner's work, and indeed that of uh, Dr. McGilchrist, both articulate the crucial importance of sensory stimulation and engagement, particularly as part of the development of neural pathways, and particularly in early childhood learning and language. What lies at the core of these remarks is a search for an understanding 
of capacity and creativity as a crucial, as a crucible to unlock resources of potential and insight. To revisit the work of Dr. McGilchrist for a moment, he makes a powerful point in describing a number of moments in our history when the flowering of the best of the right hemisphere and the best of the left hemisphere working together converge for the immeasurable benefit and prosperity of humankind. As witnessed in Athens in the 6th century by activities in the humanities and in science working together, and in ancient Rome during the Augustan era, or through an openness and energy that was regained during the Renaissance a thousand years later, which brought sudden efflorescence of creative life in the sciences and the arts. To Dr. McGilchrist's example, I would add several of my own in the same vein. That period of remarkable prosperity known as La Convivencia that existed during the height of the Caliphate of Cordoba in 10th and 11th century Spain, in which Islam, Judaism, and Christianity cooperated and collaborated so harmoniously. The perfect example of which was those translators sitting together in the great library of Toledo, translating many of the books that you have in this library um, and many of the classics that we know about in our own tradition, coming from the Arab world into our own, into our own culture. Or, to take another example, um, that moment um, of extraordinary period of science, art, and technology that flourished in China um, during the 11th and 16th centuries in, during the Song and Ming dynasties. However, McGilchrist reminds us that these are sadly the exceptions rather than the norms, and that as time passes, so the left hemisphere once again comes to dominate affairs and things slide back into a more theoretical, conceptualized, abstracted, bureaucratic sort of view of the world. The kind of banal mindset I would suggest that too often dominates the way we frame agendas and priorities to this day. Ian McGilchrist is not alone in detecting an unusual alignment of forces at work in the world at the moment, which have the capacity to disrupt and dislodge many of our capacities, many of our perceptions, and many of our preconceptions. Perhaps a brief reminder of the environmental and sensory confrontations implicit in the field research of Edmund Carpenter and Steve Feld might provide an, initial, an, addi an additional and appropriate jolt to our thinking. The rituals of a life in Nunavut or at Mount Vasavi present extreme contrasts to the experience of our rather conventional urban existences. I am attracted to these revelations precisely because they delve into milieus so unlike my own as to confound and confuse my very concept of existence. Through them, I am forced to confront the way in which I sense and perceive the world around me. Why does this matter? The more we learn and discover about the world in which we live, the more we realize just how little we really know about it, how unstable and strange, immense and puny our planet truly is, and how increasingly monochromatic and bland our civilization's ability both to sense and make sense of it has become. The insidious parallel to this process of omnipresent urbanization 
and modernization is surely the systematic diminution of cultural memory. Similar examples exist in our own culture. When the Irish poet Oliver Goldsmith wrote The Deserted Village in 1770, he depicted a period in British history in which a powerful elite um, thought nothing of clearing the countryside, of forcefully removing people from land they had occupied for generations, of literally dispossessing a whole rural class for personal financial gain condemning hordes of rural inhabitants to unhygienic lives in crowded, sprawling cities. Not only were the enclosure laws and related actions of 18th century politicians morally dubious, but over time they have become environmentally suspect as well. Let me quote some favorite lines from Oliver Goldsmith's Confronting Pastoral. A time there was ere England's griefs began when every rood of ground maintained its man. For him, light labor spread her wholesome store, just gave what life required, but gave no more. His best companions, innocence and health, and his best riches, ignorance of wealth. But times are altered, trades unfeeling train, usurp the land, dispossess the swain. I do not want to make too much about the kind of sense of nostalgia contained in Goldsmith's political critique. It's no longer specifically relevant to our times. It is in some ways too remote, too antiquated from our circumstances to be of specific political value. However, his pithy lyricism also contains a, con a kernel of environmental precaution. It might be sufficient to suggest that to the, to the expanded definitions of intelligence and capacity for which um, Howard Gardner is, is justifiably renowned, we might propose another kind of intelligence to regain to recapture another kind of intelligence, another kind of capacity. I don't exactly have a name for it, but it is a type of intelligence that enables us intimately and accurately to sense our environments. A form of creative engagement that hones in on minute shifts and changes to our surroundings. Perhaps it should be called ecological or sustainable capacity or intelligence. I have no doubt that such acumen can be, found, can be found within the various definitions of intelligence which Gardner describes so ably in his book, Frames of the Mind, 20, 30 years ago. A capacity which, to paraphrase the philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, enables senses to be placed and places to be sensed. A challenge, I hope you'll agree, worthy of a great conversation of humankind.
have everyone in this university about whether we recognize sufficiently the different kinds of intelligence that there are. Um, I remember, it was interesting you hearing you talking about um, um, people making sense of their world or their environment through hearing. I remember being with, um, in, in Australia and being at a conference of educa educators. And they talked about how when they, um, there was a, a real issue about um, Aboriginal children failing in the school system. And, uh, and then a teacher spoke about how she had introduced for, very, for six, five and six year olds into the class uh, a, a game that they all loved, which was classic Pelmism, where she had a tray and she put a lot of different things, shells and stones and different items onto this tray and covered it with a cloth. And then we'd say, what was on that? Tray, having only shown it for a couple of minutes to cover it over, what was on that tray? And the children in the class messed at it for the Aboriginal children. And the reason why was that somewhere in their genetic makeup was this way in which they read detail so well because apparently it's part of a sort of Aboriginal You can't experience. navigate that environment without, without that detail. That's right. you, you, you will die. Yeah. Many British backpackers underestimating that environment do die because they think that it is a verdant um, uh, pastoral in, in the sense that you would find in Oxfordshire. Um, and that in fact it is anything but. Yeah. Um, and so your point is extremely well made. It's about that reading of, you know, of, of a grass shifting will tell you that there's some creature in there. Um, the reading of, of certain changes in the, uh, you know, in the environment, in the, in, the, in the physicality of the space, will tell you things about the danger that that could be. I don't want to get diverted from this, but, but to, to, to just to, to add to the point you're making about the education of indigenous Australians, um, uh, which is, frankly, a scandal. Um, uh, um, I, I worked uh, at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology um, in the architecture faculty there some 15, 20 years ago, and we undertook a series of projects within remote Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. Um, these children were in um, tropical and subtropical environments. The classrooms that they were placed in were, had been designed by, um, in a job lot by Commonwealth architects, Commonwealth Australia architects, for the climatic conditions of Canberra, um, and they had been basically dumped in the Northern Territory. It was a one-size-fits-all. Um, so in 30-degree heat, um, silver-clad um, demountable classrooms were thought to be appropriate for indigenous students um, in these environments. Um, and, the, um, and the air conditioning that was required in those environments was in some cases um, higher than the threshold of human for some students who were suffering from hepatitis media because of, of, of hygiene and their you know, ear infections. So there was an even more basic challenge than that. 
the buildings were wrong, um, the hygiene wasn't exactly optimal, and therefore they could. Um, so, um, so, so that it was an absurd situation um, uh, that was an imposed set of values that was complete nonsense. And it was an imposed set of values that led through logical consequence to those people thinking that they were in some ways less intelligent. And your example very powerfully demonstrates that actually if we are taking a broader view of the multiple intelligences, there are things that every single one of those students, students could do that none of us would have hope for. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to come in, but before I do, there was another thing that really kind of caught me in, in your talk, which was about the nature of, of festivals. And I just, I, was it seen as being a, a kind of, if you like, safety valve in societies that you allow people a period of, if you like, a period of grace in which they could do whatever they you know, wanted to do, um, and then they had to, the constraints then would come back on again. But it was a kind of safety valve or some kind of valve that allowed a kind of rush of behaviours that were normally not allowable. It was a very clever political ploy by those in control to say if that, that if their control was total, they would totally lose control. But if they actually allowed these moments of abandonment and freedom, and that they actually had an occasional turnabout in social order or in adopted mores, sexual mores or, 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 or social standing, that actually they could maintain their positions. We Glaswegians always think the Edinburgh folk become nicer during the Edinburgh Festival. They, they let their hair down. Well, they, they, they certainly become nicer, but they become madder. <laughs> um, I, I have a perfect example of somebody who um, I know very well, who is um, a very typically very discreet but very judgmental um, person of a certain age from a particular suburb. I won't say the suburb, I'll give you the postcode, it's an age three. More than There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And um, this person in July, in any, in any other month other than August, would um, be writing letters to the Scotsman about the sights that he or she had seen um, in the street and the, and the absolute disgrace of public morals that this represented. In August, that same person, because I have been with that person, um, um, actually engages in a conversation that goes along the lines of that multi-breasted green monster isn't nearly as outrageous as that purple, purple dolphin that we saw um, at the fringe two days ago. Um, what's with it with these people who think that they're outrageous when they're really not? Um, and so there is a sense in which the collective spirit that a festival can encourage starts to infect even the most high-minded. And I think that is what is so powerful and persuasive about the festival space. Mm. I don't think there is one festival space. I was suggesting in the, the brief remarks that I made is that there are many <coughs> ideas of what a festival could be. 
one of which is a kind of moment of topsy-turviness, one of which is a kind of ritual, the idea that a narrative, the, the Da Vincian idea that the, the, the water never flows under, the, under, the, under a bridge more than once. So you, you go back to that same place, you enact that same ritual every year or, or regularly, you go back to Mecca, you go back to Santiago de Campastelas. Um, for those of you who have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, you, you enact a journey like that. And the journey is your sublimation of your own self to a greater, to a greater idea. And in doing so, you are, first of all, a different person each time, and you discover things about yourself, about your environment, and you are attuned to that. What we've become in terms of our, um, our festivals are hobbyists. And the, the Bongi Bayou Mullet Festival is the most absurd example of that. And I do make that um, argument to sort of calm us all down about how highfalutin we should be. Because actually, the Bongi Bayou Mullet Festival in High School, Florida, is as it is just as legitimate as a festival as, as Bayreuth or Edinburgh. And I need to, to make that very clear because this is a bunch of enthusiasts going into a river, fishing for this fish, and, the, and, and they, they keep them in little sort of, yeah, sort of little enclosures at the, at the bottom of the river. And at the end of their weekend, they toss all the mullets back. And the person who can toss his or her mullet first um, is the mullet king or queen of the festival for that year. And so there is a wonderful ritual of respect. I catch you and I return you. Um, the symbolism of this ridiculous ritual is actually quite powerful. And we shouldn't think that anything is off limits in the festival space as it's being explored. What I do think that the festival space does suggest to us, though, as the hobbyist rather than the, the, the spiritualist or rather than um, the, 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 the subversive, if I can explore those, those senses, is that actually, even in that instance, it connects us to our environment in a very particular way. Why is it that um, we don't know about the great festival of London, the great festival of Berlin, the great festival of New York? That the great festivals that we hear about in those contexts are in places like Edinburgh and Avignon and Salzburg and Spoleto and Charleston and so forth. Because I would suggest that those cities have a specific scale to them. You walk everywhere. You're not actually driving to places, you're walking. So the scale, the speed in which you are experiencing your environment is quite different. You cannot speed past the festival space and capture its essence. You have to walk there. You, 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 there is no way of fast-tracking those kinds of rituals. There is, there is only um, a kind of very gentle unfolding. And a place like Edinburgh, for instance, you arrive there and you get a, you get a sense of the scale of the place the minute you, you, you land, the minute you arrive at Waverley Station, the minute you arrive by boat, if, 
if, if, if that's the way you arrive, and some people do, you get a sense of the scale of the place. It's your place, it's your domain, it's your playground for the, for the time that, that the festival is on. Who'd like to come in? Done. Thank you. This is fantastic. Um, thank you. Um, fantastic talk. So much to think about. Um, I wanted to ask about, I really liked your emphasis on the material and the sensed and the relationship between that and the sensed and the way we make sense of it. And I wanted to ask in light of that, do you think that new intelligence that you're suggesting is in addition to the Gardner book? Should remain a quintessentially humanistic intelligence. It should be. Should it be expanded beyond the human? I certainly think it should be expanded um, beyond the human, as long as it's rooted in the human. Because I actually think that there is no, um, there is no challenge to a human idea of intelligence as long as we understand its origins. Where we seek a substitute of it. I think that then, then we seek um, um, a, a limit of it because it becomes mechanistic. I would suggest it's actually a function rather than an intelligence. And I think, you know, um, I do it. I do when I'm offering. Often when I'm making that point in a lecture, I ask people, "What's the first thing you think about when I use the word intelligence?" And many people say IQ tests. And IQ tests were for so very long based on logical, linguistic forms of intelligence. And I think that's the point I wanted to make there, that actually we don't know enough about this to be prescriptive about it. Um, and I certainly know that, um, that in these times in which we are all engaged in um, a society that Michael Power describes as an ordered society, in which he suggests that we are, that our rituals are the rituals of verification, then we need to be very careful about the assumptions that we are making, about the models that we are proposing for um, our knowledge and our experiences of the world. Here, to, to give you another example, the biologist E.O. Wilson um, says that it is um, very dangerous <coughs> for us to make assumptions about biodiversity when we've only probably discovered 35% of, of, of the species in our planet. If you ask an economist what model of the market would be based on 35% of, of known uh, information, they would be finding that very difficult to contend with, or a surgeon saying, you only know 35% of, of what you need to know to undertake this particular procedure, then we're back with John Hunter. Then we're back with that courageous moment in, in anatomy and, and surgery, um, assisted um, by you know, public executions and, and floggings that where hardship was the norm of the day. And where, for that period in, in surgery, um, uh, Mortality rates for procedures were were were, were acceptable at 40 and 50 percent. I would suggest that surgery has come a long way, and I would suggest that um, we need to be very careful about 
postulating beyond um, those, um, without being arrogant about those kinds of attitudes. Specifically in terms of material thinking, um, what, I, what is attractive about Paul Carter's book is an attempt to try and find an alternative way of talking, an alternative language about being in the moment of, of literally in the moment of a time-based activity like um, a piece of music and literally being in uh, the force field with a, an object-based experience like a painting, an installation, a sculpture. Um, and those are completely different experiences to reductive or analytical. I'm not suggesting that those things are less important. I'm simply suggesting that we have the knowledge now that is expanding to suggest that the world is much more complex. And yet, the, the instrumental nature of the way we frame questions, the way we set agendas, and the way we reflect um, our, our pre preconceptions in institutions particularly um, has not shifted in a way that would that, that, that these that knowledge would suggest it ought to have done. Um, there's been no reform of uh, fundamental reform of the prison system in the UK since the Victorian era. There's been no there's not been a fundamental reform of so many in public institutions, whether they be educational, um, uh, um, legal, um, uh, public or private. Um, the BBC um, is, is another <coughs> example of an institution that is, that is wonderful in and of its moment and of its time, but perhaps in itself needs a profound rethink for the, for the times that we're at. That, we, that they were living in. So I'm searching for a relationship between modes of potential and capacity and how we start to think about that in our collective lives. I have a question. Um, thank you for your uh, presentation. A lot of thank you. Um, I was struck by um, the combination of uh, space um, and the combination relating to context and the third element that you raised um, regarding um, sustainability and capacities. And I'm, um, this is much more of a practical question, but I'm interested in a couple contexts which you did not mention, and they more have to do with social capacity and the role of the arts or music regarding this. And um, two examples that I can give is one has to do with equalizing the playing field for those who have and those who do not have. And one example I can give is in the New York area, there is a school that helps minority kids learn how to um, play classical harp as a means of providing a new opportunity for them, a new capacity for them. Um, and the second area, it has to do with um, the, the whole area of 
using music as a therapy for the betterment of people who have some kind of, not mental necessarily, but physical ailment. And I know that that's been done for quite a long time. I wonder, I'd be interested in your comments I, on those two domains. I'd like to refer you to the work of an extraordinary individual called Jose Abreu. Jose Abreu um, is the founder of the Venezuelan, the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra in Venezuela. Uh, this weekend, some close to 300,000 young Venezuelan children will, on, will dedicate their Saturday mornings to performing in an orchestra throughout the length and breadth of that country. The point I wanted to make, and it's it, it, it actually fed me the line rather nicely, um, this is not about money. Um, the, the, the richest countries in terms of, of economic statistics are often the poorest examples in, in some of these things. Um, and, and that's because the measurements they choose are so prescriptive. Jose Abreu did not start the, the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra because he wanted um, to have a flowering of a great musical culture in Venezuela. He certainly, as a musician, wouldn't have minded that, and it was in the back of his mind. But he actually just wanted to get kids off the streets and not taking drugs on weekends. That was his very, very much <coughs> fundamental starting point. He felt that actually, if they had the rigor of music, companionship of an orchestra, and the joy of that sound and, and their individual responsibility for that sound, they would, um, they would be really inspired um, to uh, lead their lives in a different way. He can't do more than he's doing, and it's extraordinary to think about the fact that in a very poor country like Venezuela, with all of its political and social challenges that, that an individual has, has, has given, um, given this gift to humanity. It should be replicated everywhere. It should be, he should be cloned. He should be, um, he should be, as, it should be um, do we go part of every rich country and every, and, and, and in, in, within, within a kind of um, a cultural dimension uh, meaning that one would ne not necessarily ask people from, from India and Bangladesh to be playing the violin, but actually thinking along similar lines within their own culture. Um, this model should actually be adopted as a universally important idea. Are you in Scotland, aren't they? They are. They're, they're, they're trialling it in Scotland, absolutely, with, with increasing success. And so I think um, the point you raise about um, this access of opportunity is that um, I think that, again, it, it speaks to the, to, the, to the core of this idea of what are our values, and how we define them, and how limited they are. And those limits, the cynic in me thinks that these limits are externally imposed by those who have the most to gain. From, from making these limits as narrow as they are. Um, I don't think the world um, exists in quite 
as controlled away as that, actually. I think when one, when, when one sees a, um, a conspiracy theory, it, it's more often not an, uh, an incompetence theory rather than a conspiracy theory. So I think that there's an incremental slide into these kinds of decision-making. Um, but it's certainly true that um, one of the most uh, confronting challenges that I face as both a musician as a festival director was the decision to make um, the music syllabus an optional part of the education program within the UK. And the minute that that is reversed will be the minute that I am popping any sort of bubbly substance that I can find. Because um, I think that there is, for the reason that I've spent the, the best part of 45 minutes describing to you, I think that we should not prescribe limits to people's lives so early in them as to say they only need this and they only need that. These terribly, these terribly constraining um, dimensions to be successful. Um, we know that's not true. Uh, I would go further though, and I would suggest that actually what our relationship with the arts, um, with music and the visual arts, with drama, uh, beyond the, the, the companionship, beyond, the, beyond all of the social skills that it provides, they are the skills that actually um, allow us to critically engage with, to place our senses and to sense our places that I see as fundamental both politically and environmentally uh, to the future of our world. Um, I'll give you a good example. Um, there's a friend of mine who is a chef in Berkeley. She has a very famous restaurant, it's organic food. And she went as part of a student night, a student um, parent night to her, her daughter's high school. Um, nearby, and she was describing what she did and inviting the class at some stage to come to her restaurant. She would feed them this beautiful, nourishing food, and then she asked them questions after she'd given her address about the various elements of food that she had been describing. For instance, she said, "Where do peas come from?" My little boy said, "Yes, yes, yes. I know where peas come from." They come from the really long white refrigerator in the supermarket. Yes, but where do they come from? That's where they come from. It's a sort of immaculate conception out of a kind of white tomb. Think about it. So what um, Alice Waters did was that she went to um, that the the, the um, she was horrified. She went to um, the principal of the school and said, I will pay for um, taking up the asphalt in, in, the, in, the, um, in, in the playground, and I will help you, and my staff will help you. We will plant a, 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 a vegetable garden. We will get the students to actually grow the produce for their lunch. So they have now, at, at, was the first of its kind of expanded across Northern California, there's some two or three hundred um, edible schoolyards, um, starting with 
the, um, the, the uh, Martin Luther King High School or Junior School at in Berkeley in California. And that's a good example of the kind of mindset that we know is absurd, but is it? Absolutely, every single step of that little boy's statement about that long white fridge was completely consistent with his sense of the place that he was, was growing up in. In terms of therapy, um, I'm not um, competent to comment on those things. I know people who would be so much better placed to describe very precisely the, 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 the rejuvenatory and the rejuvenating and, and, and potential of of such of such therapeutic um, options, non-invasive um, and non um, and, and, and nil by mouth, as it were. You don't actually have to imbibe anything. Um, exactly. But what I would say is that, um, and this is perhaps um, a being a bit cute. Uh, I would like to suggest that, in a sense, the festival that I now run is a form of, was a form of social therapy when it was established in 1947, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, at a time when there was food and petrol rationing. I was asked by the Bangladeshi Cultural Minister at an international conference we held as part of the festival last year, it's great that you're talking about this wonderful festival and its economic impact, but, but Britain is a rich country. You can afford these things. I said, not in 1947. <laughs> we started a festival in 1947 when um, we were on our knees. Why was it that there was this overwhelming urge to re revert to a, a kind of communal sense of culture in that moment? I think it's because when all of this um, middle-brow um, nonsense is demonstrated to be so absurd, we have to search um, for something much more profound. And we find our way back to ritual, we find our way back to um, the sensual, we find our way back to many things, negative and positive. But one of the things I would like to suggest that a, a festival can do, or, or the Edinburgh Festival did, was it started to restore a sense of equilibrium, started to restore a sense of optimism and potential to a, to a community who would have been forgiven for thinking in the, in the shadow of Auschwitz and Leningrad that no hope um, actually um, was possible at all. Can I just add, add something there? Can I, sorry, is, is it that same thread that I'd like to get someone else in? Oh, you can ask them, yes. Thank you. Well, you can carry that on at a later poll. Um, we've come to the right place if you want to hear about um, odd festivals, whether it's the uh, Willingdon Club, throwing bread rolls in restaurants, which is a kind of a festival. Born at Mansfield, I'm, I'm pleased to say. Um, one of my uh, most uh, interesting festivals in Oxford is, is, is one built around a tortoise race. It's not easy to race tortoises, so um, if you can imagine what they do, the colleges that used to own them, is to put them in a 
circle, uh, a rope circle, and then the first one that crossed the rope won. And my college, which was quite radical, had a, had a tortoise called Rosa Luxemburg, who used to sleep for about eight hours. But once she got going, she always won, I'm pleased to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, what I've, I've really enjoyed the, 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 your, your talk and your lecture, um, and I find myself agreeing with, with, with all the sort of bits, but there was something I wanted to try and clarify, um, which comes out of your quotation of, of Goldsmith, because at, at times I, I felt that you, you were lapsing towards utopianism and nostalgia, although you said you weren't. Um, uh, I mean, I, I feel that you, you're not a lot at. You obviously accept that the planet is changing very rapidly, whether we like it or not. Um, it would be wonderful if aware people like us could stop consuming, um, knocking down forests, uh, using up resources. But then we know that, for example, the Chinese and the Indians, where I come from, they feel they've had, had their share. What they want to do is to, is to consume a lot more to catch up. So it's a very difficult situation. So I wanted to clarify what, in what sense, uh, I believe in the conversation, I believe that arts must be brought to the fore, although I suppose you'd also agree that at the moment we're going backwards. I mean, your lecture very timely because, as you said, in terms of school curriculums and uh, financial support and so on, it's actually a tougher time. Um, so I believe in all that. But in, in terms of, I don't want to call it progress because that suggests it's better. Let's call it modernization. Um, it's it's a tough it's a tough call that you're making. It, it um, is. It is a tough call. It's in part a provocation. I'll say that directly. Um, it's in part um, uh, um, a, a sort of publicly shared thought process. Um, there is no doubt that um, uh, when I think about um, the festivals and the rituals, some of which refer to, particularly the medieval jamborees and jousts, um, I would loathe being in that stinking. Um, festering, unhygienic mess. I'll admit that um, very, very openly. Um, I'm quite happy to be um, in charge of something that is much more contained and much more about um, the birds of one feather flocking together, the enthusiasts um, congregating in one place um, and enjoying themselves. Having said that, what I am searching for is both a language and a sense of balance in which we do not lose ourselves entirely um, in, um, in the mechanistic. So for me, it is not um, an argument, increasingly not an argument, just, just to, to add another provocation about necessarily genetically modified crops. Um, that's probably as provocative as one can be in, 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 in something as essential as the food chain. Um, and yet, it is absolute, and it, nor is it about suggesting 
um, that in places like China, in places like Indonesia, and in places like India, there is not an inevitability that the processes of um, modernization, industrialization, um, are occurring in ways that um, that are astonishing. Um, India and China provide an extremely good comparison, as it turns out, I think. Um, the democracy of India um, is just as corrupt as um, the, uh, the highly um, concentrated um, communist state of, of, of China. Um, <coughs> the Indian cities like Mumbai um, pose as a great, greater challenges in, in some instances to, to individual um, life and liberty than, than some of their Chinese counterparts. Um, I am suggesting that we need to be very careful about exclusive um, reliance on mechanisms that provide immediate rather than long-term um, ideas of stability and wealth. And yes, I am, by quoting Goldsmith, being quite provocative by choosing an 18th century Irish playwright and poet. I am aware that I am provoking. Um, there's no doubt that as many people um, died of disease in Jim Lane, described by Hogarth, mm -hmm. there were people who were fed. Um, closer to my own home, um, Robert Hughes writes a very provocative book about the reasons for going to Australia. There's an alternative and plausible um, dimension to that. Um, the, those, those convicts who were lucky enough to be chosen to go to Australia had the choice, had the chance to escape um, the unhygienic hulks, uh, the, the boats that were sort of um, permanently stuck in the Thames. These are very complex um, issues to unpack. I'm simply suggesting that the models that we use to unpick and unpack them are inadequate and incomplete. And that what I'm hoping to do by such a discourse is to suggest that we have the tools and we have the knowledge to expand the conversation that you rightly suggest so provocatively we should be having. That was my intention. And um, of course, um, as a musician, um, words are not my first tool. <laughs> I am searching for um, fragments that have, at least to my mind, 
some coherence in creating an alternative space and an alternative way in which we can pursue such a dialogue. Well, can I, I, have we exhausted our conversation at this stage? There's a hand over there, and I'm going to make it the last. dimension of festivals and, and it seems to me that you suggest that um, in our world of atomization and madness that the, the top feature of music the festival offers is a kind of heightened sense of both sense and place and place together. And so I was interested to see what you think happens when we emerge from that back into our sort of homogenous and, and, and ordinary lives. Are we given a heightened awareness of their inadequacy or are we is it our release valve, much as the, uh, the topsy-turvy festivals were for the social order of previously? Well, I, I think there's an even more fundamental question than that, is are these festivals, in many instances, doing what I claim of them? <laughs> um, and I would say that in many instances they're not. And I am, in that sense, being absolutely, um, to, to paraphrase this gentleman at the back, um, rather utopian in my ideas. I am using, however, um, some very specific instances that illustrate what we should aspire to, what should be, what should should inspire our ambitions, rather than what what the reality is. Um, the reality is often very different. The reality is that um, festivals. I would like to think not the end of festival, but but but. But, 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 but that's a question that can remain open, that festivals can actually be part of the problem. That they can, in, in, in certain instances, um, lead, us to, lead us to water but not allow us to drink. Um, that they can actually give us a false perspective or that they are actually not what they claim to be. They're not festivals at all. I would at least like people who, I mean, as we're speaking, I'm sure there's been 20 festivals started in the world. Um, mostly, when people use the word festival, it's incredibly loosely used because it seemed to have been some kind of code for you'll get more funding if you call yourself a festival than if you actually call yourself um, a recital series. Or you might actually, it, it's code for saying, hey, um, we can be a bit more outrageous. Certainly, um, uh, there are festivals whose claim on innovation and outrageous behaviour is palpable nonsense. Um, and there are also claims made of slightly more restrained events um, that because of the stillness that attaches to them, particularly in the kind of um, uh, maelstrom of our lives, um, are potentially much more radical than that um, triumph of style over substance that so often goes with the packaging and the marketing of something that looks funky, but when you delve beneath it, it's actually rather mundane. So let's, 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 let's start by a large caveat that says, we need to be 
um, aware of what we're doing. And I'm, I'm making these statements because I think they are, um, they are the essential um, uh, prerequisite for anyone in a position like my own to have at least thought about these issues. I am not coming into a vacuum. I don't have a complete control of the city or the circumstances in which I'm making this. But at least I can suggest some ideas that refer to or are consistent with or are the outcomes of the kind of consistent intellectual thought processes, some of which I've shared with you tonight. As to whether the festival um, makes things better or worse, that, um, that uh, too is a very mixed, um, that's a very mixed question as well. Um, because I think um, there is no doubt that at moments in its existence, Edinburgh's festival has provided um, a collective insight and a collective idea and of, of particularly of, of cultures beyond our own. Um, it's called an international festival um, and it was called that from 1947. It was described by um, the, the, Lord, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh uh, at the time, before he knew what he was talking about, before anyone knew what they were talking about, as a festival whose intention was to embrace the world. And I certainly think that there was a genuine ambition in the after the narrowness and bitterness of the Second World War to open things up. There was no sense of editing um, and, and censorship. So I think the, the best, the, the most honest answer I can give you is I really don't know. It will be um, some people who will um, find meaning and, and relevance in, in these kinds of activities and there will be others for whom um, it's just um, a, 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 a mating ritual, an excuse to have a good night out. What I would hope that it did, though, um, in, a, in, a, in a strategic sense, was at least maintain a sense of adventure and at least a sense of allowing new ideas and new voices that were not overly mediated, overly packaged and over-marketed from emerging. And in that sense, reoxygenating um, the ecology of the arts. And that's very specific to Edinburgh. Well, listen, I think that's the moment to say thank you, John. It was a really interesting, stimulating, challenging lecture. And, uh, and it, it, you know, it, it's a good time that it made people think and it will carry on a conversation after this. And I want to thank you very much for the effort and time you clearly put into such an interesting presentation. So can everyone show our appreciation and say, John, thank you.